Welcome to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, a show that features backgrounds, reviews, and reflections of some of the most influential movies ever made. And now your hosts. everyone and welcome back to the old soul movie podcast it's me emma and i'm joined today by isabella my sister isabella how are you doing today uh i'm doing great today emma it's a it's a beautiful day outside i've been loving this nice weather uh just feeling ready overall for the summer to come yes i'm quite excited myself we actually have a very interesting episode in store for us today we are covering A Night to Remember from 1958, and this was actually a listener-suggested slash requested episode. So very exciting. I have never, ever seen this movie before, but I like checking out new movies for the first time, and I was informed that this is the 110th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic disaster. So I think it's really important that we maybe just take some time to look at this occurrence in history because I actually think that we can learn so, so much from it. And I think that this gives us an opportunity to talk about a really remarkable film as well. So I'm excited to get into it. Thank you so much to the listener who requested this. Um, I'll share my thoughts in a little bit as we go along, but spoiler alert, I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, okay, so A Night to Remember in 1958. It was directed by Roy Ward Baker. Screenplay was by Eric Ambler. Story was by Walter Lord, based on his book, A Night to Remember, produced by William McQuitty. Uh, it's starring a bunch of people. I will get there in like two shakes of a lamb's tail. <laughs> um, we have cinematography by Jeffrey Unsworth, music by William Alwyn, distributed by the Rank Organization. This is actually a British film. I think this is the first British film we've actually covered, if I'm correct. I might be wrong on that, but um, yeah, that's actually really exciting to see a non-American production. Uh, released July 3rd, 1958. Its running time is 123 minutes. Yeah. So so that is kind of the basics on it. Let's get into the cast. Now, this movie is really cool because we get to see a lot of different, like a lot of different people's stories. <laughs> There's a Almost lot so of many that line. you can't even keep track of who's who or any of the names. <laughs> There's a lot of characters, a lot of actors. Um, I'm not going to go like too in depth into what every actor had done, but there's also, I mean, these were real people. And with that, there's information on them related to this. So I'm going to briefly kind of go um, along the list of the cast and characters and some standout information. Okay, so I'll go down the list. We have Kenneth Moore as second officer, Charles Herbert Lightoller. And I don't know why I struggle with his last name. So I might pronounce it like 20 different ways, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no clue. <laughs> um, I don't know why I struggle saying his last name. But anyway, he is a really big player in this event. Um, he's kind of our main character in this story, really. Really? I would say so. I actually remember him in the last shot, the last shot. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like we get a lot of things framed from his perspective at the very beginning to the very end with a lot of other people's perspectives in between. We have Michael Goodliffe as the shipbuilder, Thomas Andrews, Thomas Andrews, the architect of the ship. Uh, he was played by Victor Garber in the 1997 Titanic version. 
We have Lawrence Naismith as Captain Edward J. Smith. I think this is really interesting. So the real Captain Smith's daughter came to visit the set when this was being made. And she was just incredibly moved by how similar he was in his portrayal to her dad. So I thought that that was really cool because a little bit of a spoiler alert, um, Captain Smith did not live. Um, We have Kenneth Griffith as wireless operator Jack Phillips and David McCallum as assistant wireless operator Harold Bride. We'll talk more about the operators during the rewatch portion, but their story was particularly of interest to me, I would say. Oh, by the way, David McCallum, who played Harold Bride, he actually, if he looks familiar, he played the agent Ilya Kuryakin in the uh, television series, The Man from Uncle. So if you've seen the new movie that was based off of that show. And then also he was actually in NCIS as Dr. Mallard, AKA Ducky. And also he is one of the last living actors from the 1963 movie, The Great Escape, which is very famous Steve McQueen movie. Everyone knows the score to that one. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, he's actually a pretty big deal actor. We have Tucker McGuire as Mrs. Margaret Molly, quotation marks, Brown. Very memorable character from the 1997 Titanic. There is a 1960 Broadway musical, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, and the 1964 movie of the same name with Debbie Reynolds. Margaret Brown, really cool lady. Actually never went by Molly during her lifetime. That was something that the newspapers dubbed her. So I'm going to try saying Margaret and not Molly. I don't know why Molly Brown just rolls off the tongue, but yeah, she preferred to go by Margaret. She was a Denver socialite and very progressive in social issues. So she was actually the chairperson for the Titanic Survivors Committee. And as soon as they got to the Carpathia, she started fundraising money for all the third class and second class passengers from Titanic that survived because they lost all their possessions. So she really did a lot to help them find resources for resettling life because a lot of people were immigrants too. But also she advocated for women workers' rights, women's voting rights, literacy for children. Uh, She also helped create the basis of the juvenile court system and finding help for those kids in the court system. Uh, Very, very interesting woman. She was very, very critical of the women and children only policy, but we'll um, talk more about her and her ideas as we go along in the movie. Very memorable character. She's been in like every rendition of Titanic ever made. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go kind of quick through everyone else. We have Frank Lawton as White Star Line, J. Bruce Ismay. We have Richard Leach as First Officer William McCaster Murdoch. To my knowledge, this is the character, if you're familiar with the 1997 Titanic, this is the man who shot himself. However, according to survivor accounts that I've read, he did not shoot himself. So that's one of those things up for debate. We'll kind of talk about all the myths and legends (laughs) as we get into the background. Uh, We have John Kearney as Mr. Murphy. We have Patrick McElhaney as Mr. James Farrell. We have Anthony Bushell as Captain Arthur Rostron. We have Alec McCohen as wireless operator Harold Thomas Cottom of the Carpathia. We have Ronald Allen as Mr. Clark, Jill Dixon as Mrs. Clark. I believe they're the newlyweds. We have Jeffrey Bildon as wireless operator Cyril Evans of the SS Californian. We have George Rose as Chief Baker Charles Jofin. 
We have John Miraville as Robbie Lucas. Honor Blackman is Mrs. Liz Lucas. You may recognize Honor Blackman as the iconic Pussy Galore Bond girl of Goldfinger. Oh, okay. Okay. There are definitely a couple of familiar faces in there, but that makes sense if that's where she's from. Mm-hmm. We have Robert Ayers as Arthur Godfrey Puchin. We have Ralph Michael as Jay Yates. We have James Dyronforth as Colonel Archibald Gracie IV. Uh, Colonel Archibald Gracie IV, another really influential survivor. Uh, after arriving in New York after the rescue, he set out to gather all the other survivor stories to determine who was on what lifeboat and what actually happened. Sadly, he actually died in December of 1912 from health complications that came from the sinking. But his manuscript of all of his findings were able to be published, and it's called Titanic, a Survivor Story. You can actually find it really easily today, um, and it's usually published alongside the survival story of Jack Thayer III, um, both where the lifeboat collapsible be with Lightoller. And um, that was the lifeboat at the very end that was featured. Uh, so Walter Lord, who wrote the book that this was based off of, A Night to Remember, he said that Gracie's account is invaluable for chasing down who went on what boat and determining what happens. So that book was a huge help to this movie source material. Um, I'm showing Isabel. I have the book right here, but you oh. have, yeah, it's um, the one I have is like red and black with the Titanic boat in the middle, but yeah, it's Titanic, a survivor story on top with the sinking of the SS Titanic on the bottom. It's so sad. Both men actually have really tragic family lives too. So it's just so sad all along. Um, we have Russell Napier as Captain Stanley Lord, and this, and he is not related to Alan Napier or Jack Napier. <laughs> it's so funny that you say that because when I was going through the the cast and I saw Napier, I'm never going to not think of Jack Napier now from uh, the, from Batman. So that's great. <laughs> oh my goodness, we have Jane Downs as Iowa Sylvania Zilla Holly Wilson, aka Mrs. Sylvia Lightoller. Um, long name. Yeah. But she was married to officer Lightoller. And when he passed, she said that this movie was super, super on point with what really happened. Um, I'm going to skip down a few. There's like so many, so, 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 so many cast members, but we're just going to skip forward a little bit. Uh, this was the final film of Alma Taylor. She was a silent film actress. So that's pretty notable. And then a couple of the other prominently featured people slash characters in this that are worth noting just because of the prominence of being guests on the Titanic. We have Isidore Strauss. He was the co-owner of Macy's. He and his wife are depicted. They're the couple that choose to stay together. We have John Jacob Astor IV. He was considered the richest man in the boat, one of the richest men in the world, I think. The Astor family was an extremely prominent family in American UK society. They are behind the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and other business ventures. Uh, we also see Benjamin Guggenheim. He's featured in there as well. One thing that I think is kind of, I don't know, cute, sweet, is that actually, you know, when there's the lookouts looking for ice in the crow's nest? Mm-hmm. So one of them is played by Bernard Fox. And then in Titanic 1997, he ends up playing Colonel Archibald Gracie, who wrote that really big memoir. Oh, that's so sweet. He was in both. I think that's really cool to say you were in both. It's a pretty neat connection. 
So there's a rumor with this movie, and that is that Sean Connery was in it. However, this rumor has been debunked. He is not in it, unfortunately. That would have been so cool, though, if it was true to have Honor Blackman and Sean Connery, James Bond, and Pussy Galore in the same movie. But we actually do get a couple other James Bondian connections here. Lawrence Naismith and Michael Goodliffe, they went on to be in other Bond films as well. So Naismith was in Diamonds Are Forever from 1971, and then Goodliffe was in The Man with the Golden Gun from 1974. Honor Blackman, like I said, she was in Goldfinger, but so was Desmond Lewin. He also appeared in Goldfinger as well as Q. Um, And actually, I think there were a couple other Qs in this movie as well. I can't remember who was who, but um, I think that's pretty cool. And I think Kenneth Moore actually was considered for a role in Live and Let Die, actually, for M. Hmm. So, yeah, a couple James Bond connections. It's kind of like when you're watching, you know, Game of Thrones and you're like, oh, you were in Harry Potter. or You were in Love, actually. (laughs) You see some connections. Very fun. All the British things. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into the background of this movie and the actual event itself a little bit more. So when I saw the suggestion for this movie, I was excited, but also a little intimidated because, you know, I know about the Titanic. I'm very familiar with the 1997 movie. It's a great one. I'm familiar with the basics of it, you know, iceberg, sinking, boat cracking, you know, the band playing, lifeboats, not enough lifeboats. Like, I knew the basics of it, but I didn't really know exactly how the logistics went down for it to be as bad as it was. So I spent like the last 24 hours of my life just researching and reading as much as I could. (laughs) I'm not a Titanic expert by any means, but I really tried gathering as much of varied information as I could to kind of scatter throughout the movie to show what it was really like, I suppose. So we'll try to go over as much of that as we possibly can. But the RMS Titanic, it's sinking happened 110 years ago. By the way, RMS, I believe stands for Royal Mail Service. So this meant that it was a, I guess, partnership for the British Mail Service for bringing letters back and forth. Okay. So anything with RMS is also like a mail ship. Anyway, RMS Titanic, 110 years ago, April 14th through 15th, 1912 is when it sank. And this is a story that has stuck with people for literally over a century now. And the event was the source material for the disaster movie genre, which is usually considered a subgenre of the action genre. Disaster films usually depict people leading up to, enduring, and then sort of the follow period after a disaster, which could range from natural disasters to accidents, like in this movie, or attacks or pandemics, which we've all lived. Uh, so there's definitely an increase in the disaster movie genre in the 1970s, kind of starting with Airport from 1970. And keep in mind, there are actually a few skyjackings going on during this time. So you can see like why that might have been influential in coming onto the screen. And then you see a little bit more in the late 80s, not typically classified as a disaster movie, but I'd say Die Hard could kind of count. And then you see another really big pickup again in the 90s, I would say. Uh, For example, you get Twister, like Dante's Peak, uh, of course, the 1997 Titanic. So a lot more disaster movies then. But disaster movies actually had quite an early start in terms of Hollywood. One of the earliest early ones was called Fire 
uh, exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, and it's from 1901. And it actually depicted people being rescued from a house that was on fire. So that's 1901. And then the Titanic being the event that it was being so fresh in everyone's mind. And then you have the silent film period turning out more films. This was a very natural story to adapt to the screen. Um, I'm going to butcher this German pronunciation, but you have in not in ice in 1912, which is about the sinking of the Titanic. You have Atlantis 1913, also about the sinking of Titanic. Then we fast forward a little bit more. There's actually a 1953 movie called Titanic, and that stars Clifton Webb and Barbara Stanwyck. And it's basically about a couple on the Titanic journey and the subsequent sequel. Yeah. So it's. Wait. I also have a really weird question. Yes. Going back to it, uh, you were saying how the first natural disaster film was called Fire exclamation point oh, is yeah, that yeah. does that have any connection to why you're not, you should never yell fire in a movie theater isn't that a rule oh i don't know but i feel like i always thought that that was just like a unspoken societal rule because <laughs> well, i mean you were saying that and i was like huh does that not have anything to do with it i i don't know but i've that just intrigued me. Maybe that's something I can look up later. Maybe. <laughs> it got me curious and I wasn't sure if you knew the answer. It could be. It very well could be. Yeah. So, okay. By the 50s, this has already been covered a few times. It's an event that a lot of people are still thinking about. In the 50s, there are people that are still alive that survived from the Titanic. So 1955, Walter Lord, who had a long-held fascination with the story of Titanic, he ended up publishing a nonfiction book called A Night to Remember, like we said, that this is based off of. So Lord had done a ton of research about the ship, the events leading up to the sinking, the sinking itself, kind of what happened after for people. So he conducted, I think, an interview with 64 survivors. And a lot of these survivors are actually third class passengers. And actually, until this was published, like most people just did not even pay attention to their stories. It was really like the rich people. There were a lot of very affluent people on this boat. Uh, Walter Lord actually also served as a consultant on the 1997 Titanic by James Cameron. So he was pretty present for both. And I've got to say, one of my takeaways from this movie. And I was not expecting this. You know, I love the 1997 Titanic. I really do. It's definitely an enjoyable watch. Um, However, you know, I'm aware that it's pretty romanticized. And there's a few things that are exaggerated or done for dramatic effect or whatever. So, you know, I take it with a little grain of salt. But actually, I was shocked at just how, because to me, this is the gold standard. This book and this movie are the gold standard of really seeing what happened. And so seeing how similar some of the scenes were in James Cameron's movie, it actually made that movie feel a little bit more authentic to me. (laughs) So that was kind of cool. I would agree. Yeah. There were actually several shots where I was watching in this movie and I was thinking, oh my God, I I remember seeing them, the James Cameron one, like just absolutely the same thing. There were so many. So I, I appreciate that. It does make it feel more real. And I know, I know it comes, it's very romanticized, but I think it has its perks in some ways. Oh, for sure. I mean, it was a, 
phenomenon when 97 Titanic came out. So I can only imagine what this one was like when it came out for the public. Yeah, some similar scenes, similar lines, if not the same lines. Um, Really cool to see those parallels. So how did this movie come to be? Well, director Roy Ward Baker and the film's producer, William McQuitty, bought the film rights and it was made with Rank Organization, the film company. Fun fact, William McQuitty, actually, I think he saw Titanic leave its dry dock. So when he was little, he saw Titanic in its early stages, um, which is kind of crazy to have that connection. But yeah. So this is regarded as the largest British production of the 1950s. It was also the most expensive film ever made by Rank Organization. And I believe, actually, this is our first docudrama, I think, that we've ever covered. I don't know if we've ever covered another docudrama. So that's another really exciting part of covering this movie. Certainly a movie of first for the <laughs> podcast. Oh, Absolutely. Like I said, a lot of survivors were still alive when this was being made. So a lot of real survivors were able to visit set, one of them being the real life inspiration of the woman with that pig, the lucky pig. She actually, she brought her pig to set and I think she even bequeathed it to Walter Lord in her will. I can't remember. And um, there was one, it was actually kind of like a sad touching story, but there was a scene when they were filming the sinking and a man who had survived actually tried jumping into the shot to symbolically go down with the ship with the people that passed in the accident. But he ended up, I think they pulled him out and stuff and didn't have him make the cut. But I think that would be really hard, but maybe even healing. I don't know to, to see that being filmed. I don't know. I think disaster movies are just Kind of an interesting concept in general, especially when it happens during your lifetime, I guess, or if it's like based on a real event. And I think that, you know, sometimes the ones where a disaster from uh, conscious malicious intent, it can be hard. But sometimes when it's just an accident of human error or natural disasters, I think those are the real ones that can suck people in sometimes because then you're looking at human nature and also our environment. Um, So I can see why this, I mean, it has both really in it, human error and the natural elements all colliding with each other. And I think that that's a very interesting mindset to put ourselves in. And especially when you're thinking of like the 1910s, it's particularly a big shock to the system. I think one thing that really stood out to me actually was one of the behind the scenes stories where Kenneth Moore had to jump into the water. They couldn't build like a set that was big enough to shoot, you know, survivors in the water. So they actually did shoot it at 2 a.m. on a cold November morning in a very, very large outdoor swimming pool in London. And Kenneth Moore was supposed to, you know, jump in there and no one else wanted to jump in. The director's like, you know, set the example, like jump in there. like, And so he did it. But he said there was nothing that cold in his entire life. He felt like it was jumping into a deep freeze, like the actual people did in Titanic. The shock of the cold, it took the breath out of his lungs. He felt his heart stop beating. He just felt like his body was crushed and that he had rigor mortis. And this isn't a swimming pool, not even like the the wide open ocean. Yeah. So and when he surfaced, he tried telling everyone to stop, don't jump in. But everyone had already jumped in already. I I think that just goes to show you, like, 
I hate being cold. And I think about it all the time when I'm cold. I can't even imagine, can't even imagine what that was like to have gone through that. And if you've ever taken any, you know, survival courses or anything like that to avoid hypothermia is to take off your wet clothes immediately. But if you're just surrounded in the water and stuck there, oh my gosh, I, it, it's I mean, not what are you supposed good. to do? Do you keep your clothes on then? <sighs> you know, I don't know about you. Maybe we could have a survival expert come on sometime to tell us for another like disaster movie or something about what to do. Because yeah, I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. And I think that this is why it captivates me so much. It's such a helpless, horrible situation story. So I can see why people are so drawn to learning about it. And it's really, it's miraculous that people live to me, at least in my mind, it's a miracle that anyone lived, but for, especially those people that were the last ones pulled in like Lytoler and Gracie and Thayer and a couple of the other ones, I, I, I just, I can't even imagine, can't even imagine. And actually another little piece of inspiration that this had for the 1997 movie, um, I think one of the minor third class characters helped inspire the Jack character in Titanic as well. I I could see that. I could see that. (laughs) There were definitely some characters. And keep in mind, there are a million of these characters in this movie. (laughs) Uh, But I can definitely see where there were a couple that could have maybe lent the inspiration of Jack. Oh yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of heroic moments for sure. A lot of very disheartening moments, but there are also some very inspiring moments as well. Yeah. I just, I really like this movie. I really, really did. So before we go into the rewatch and kind of break down everything, I'm going to give a timeline of what happened the night of April 14th through 15th of 1912 just to give your mind like a picture and framing because this movie actually, it, follows this pretty spot on. I feel like it jumps right into the 14th and just that whole night. Um, but here we go. This is the timeline of events that happened. March 31st, 1909, construction on the Titanic began. And from what I've likely researched about that, I feel like that was very taxing and tolling on people and took a toll on people's health. I think people might've even passed away in the process of creating the Titanic. So very, very monstrous ship to build. It was the biggest one at its time. April 10th, 1912, at 12 o'clock noon, the Titanic set sail from Southampton, England, made a stop at Cherbourg, France to get more passengers and then took off. And then on April 11th, left Queenstown, Ireland for the final destination of New York. April 14th, 11.40 p.m., Titanic struck the iceberg. April 15th at 12.05 a.m. So that is 25 minutes later. Captain Smith ordered the lifeboats to be uncovered. And then 20 minutes after that, so 12.25, they were ordered to be ready to be lowered. So this is all happening in under an hour already. The Like it's under a half an hour for them to realize this is not good. Oh my God. Very, very fast. 12.10 a.m going back in time a little bit, 1210 AM, Captain Smith ordered the distress calls to be sent out. 1225, the Carpathia says that it will turn around to help the Titanic, but they're 58 miles away. 1245 AM, the first lifeboat is lowered into the water. So that's effectively an hour and five minutes after they struck the iceberg, which I'm actually kind of impressed by how quickly that was mobilized. 
1.45 a.m. The Carpathia got the last message from Titanic and the lights went out by 2.18 a.m. By 2.20 a.m., the boat had completely sunk. So that's when it's gone. 3.45 a.m., the Carpathia arrives, but it sees no ship. 4.10 a.m., the first lifeboat is recovered. The last lifeboat is recovered around 8.30 a.m. Yeah, I know. Holy smokes. Four hours of trying to find people. Wow. Yep. Um, April 18th, I believe they all arrived at New York, the Carpathia passengers and the Titanic survivors. Uh, April 19th through July 2nd, that's when the inquiries took place in Britain and the United States to find out what the heck happened and led to this disaster and how it was so detrimental. Uh, I mean, this was one of the most deadly accidents in history. More than 1,500 people died. Uh, I think a little under a third of the total passengers survived. It's terrible. It's a really terrible event. It is just so horrible. I, ever since I saw the 1997 Titanic movie as a kid, (laughs) I refused to ever go on a cruise ship. And I think I, I feel I have I, I understand things have changed, but <laughs> ships have only gotten bigger, and uh, rules are made to be broken. I don't really trust <laughs> any of these big corporations, big cruise ship corporations. So I will never be going on a cruise ship. So to hear that statistic makes me shiver. I yeah, I've never been on a cruise in my life, so I can't even I can't even imagine. Like I can't physically put myself in what that environment looks like even but from the movies I watch it doesn't look pleasant or easy so I don't know if I ever go on a cruise I'll update everyone on how it went for me emotionally no I know <laughs> with, with my luck if I was to ever go on a cruise you know that ship's gonna sink no. I, I just know it which is why I would never ever go on a cruise ship because of my irrational fear uh, well, as terrible as this disaster was, actually a lot of positive changes were made. And I think that there's a lot of stories of courage and human resiliency that we can all learn from. And those are super important to share, as well as some of the unfortunate things that led to its actual demise. Um, yeah, I just, I, I'm excited to get into this movie. I really liked it. I really liked it. I couldn't believe that this was my first time watching it. I think that it was so good. I almost... I almost wish I had seen this before the 1997 version because I feel like you're getting the cruise perspective in this one. You're also getting a lot more varied perspective. You're getting a lot of different characters' perspectives. I mean, yes, there's definitely like the real life counterparts in the 1997 movie, but I think you see a little bit more spread across in this one. And this just feels very real. It felt very realistic to me. If you're a little bit on the higher sensitivity scale, um, I think this could be a little anxiety provoking to watch. <laughs> See, yeah, that's why I will say, I will say, I think that both the, A Night to Remember versus Titanic, they both have their pros and cons. Uh, I think a big pro for A Night to Remember is just the fact that you do get to see a lot of the crew story. You get to see kind of everyone's story. Yeah. Whereas in Titanic, it's primarily focusing on Jack and Rose, obviously. Uh, but the whimsy 
this this the cinematography the, the depressing whimsy cinematography of titanic helps you just not be as affected by the anxiety of the movie the, a night to remember i was stressed out watching Me too. it i was, too, I was but you know what stressed. like like it it, it it did i definitely felt a lot of vicarious stress but at the same time i think it was important for me to watch because i think this is a lot more true to what actually happened <laughs> without you know the beautiful score necessarily in the background of my heart will go on you know mm. i like yes that kind of maybe lightens it up a little bit um but this to me is a really good I mean, it's a docudrama. It's a very big learning source material in my mind. I think that if you're trying to learn more about the disaster that happened, go with this one. Definitely watch this one. Then go watch the 1997 one. <laughs> but yeah, it's. I think this was a great movie. Super important. Can't wait to get into it. Hopefully I remember everything I want to say again. I feel like my head is just like spilling over with all these things that I learned. Um, <laughs> But yeah, here we go. The rewatch of A Night to Remember. So we kind of start off with the boat being christened and it's off and running. We get a little message from the producers and I'll just read it. The producers gratefully acknowledge the assistance of Captain Grattage, ex-commodore of the Cunard line, of Commodore Boxhill, who is fourth officer of the Titanic, and of the many survivors of the disaster who recalled their personal experiences. That was the gratitude homage to the people that shared their stories and their experiences with the creators of this film. So then you have the boat kind of going and we're, we're setting sail and stuff. And we get this boat picture, but it's not actually the Titanic. The archive footage we're seeing is actually of the Lusitania. Oh, well, thank you for clearing that up because <laughs> silly old gullible me assumed it was Titanic. <laughs> No, it was just another big old ship, but they look similar. <laughs> so, yeah, that would have been that would have been wild, actually, if they had actual footage included. I I'm not as familiar with this fact, but I saw it in kind of my my searchings. But I believe some of the footage from a Nazi propaganda movie called Titanic that was released in the 40s was actually reused in this, which is kind of interesting to note in terms of recycling footage. Yeah. Yeah. The stage is being set. We're, we're in a, a different modality of transportation and we have Lightoller in the cabin with his wife. The Titanic is the talk of the town. People are very proud of it. They're calling it the floating city. Um, and actually, I think I read somewhere that the electric power that it took to run the Titanic was more than the supply for the average American city or something like that. Um, so it really was a floating city. It was a big deal. Very bougie. Quite bougie. Yeah. But like I said, we get to meet Officer Lightoller. So did you realize that the, I mean, I kind of, I look, I read the entire Wikipedia page of this entire disaster. So like I had the, the players' names in mind. So I felt like I was able to piece together before I watched it. But was it confusing, I guess, like watching it and keeping track? So if I'm being honest, the first 20 minutes of this movie before they're on the boat, or at least 10, 15 minutes, however long it was, moves a million miles an hour. It It is so confusing. And I didn't even realize that that was light toller. I, I had literally no idea because they all looked exactly the same to me. 
I don't know why. I just, I could not tell anyone apart in this movie. (laughs) Primarily the men. I could not tell them apart. So, I mean, I was just kind of rolling with it. I was like, all right, Titanic. (laughs) Titanic's on everyone's mind. I don't, everyone's talking about the Titanic. I had no idea. Uh, well, we definitely get to meet a large variety of people. Oh, also, I would say, I think it could be of help to just Google, like, look at the cast list and then just click the Wikipedia pages of some of those top 10 actors and just kind of see what they look like and what their role was. That kind of helped me organize who was who. That would have been good as I watched it. But yeah. Um, and then we get to meet a variety of the passengers. We get to meet some very snooty people. But then we meet the honeymooners. And then we get to this Irish town. So we're seeing that there's, you know, a little bit more of a, a lower SES population coming on the boat as well. So you're seeing the variety of people and circumstances that will be on this boat. In actuality, there were a huge amount of immigrants that traveled via the Titanic on the third class from, from all over like Russia, China, Sweden, uh, Finland, Syria, Ireland, and more, I believe. So a lot of different countries, actually one of the saddest stories that I came upon was that, so the U S had, um, passed this Chinese exclusion act. So that barred any Chinese immigrants from coming over to the States. So these Chinese men who are trying to immigrate to America, they survived the Titanic. And when they got to New York, they were deported back to China. Could you imagine? I know. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but that's fucked. That is actually (laughs) fucked. It is. You survived the Titanic and then you're just immediately deported. Yeah. So not only do they have PTSD, they're just getting deported. So yeah. Wow. I mean, it was, it's a racist law anyway, to begin with. And then you're like, have no compassion or grace or mercy. Yeah. So not good. Um, but I think, and you see this in the 1997 Titanic as well, but actually the third class steerage stowage, I can't remember the exact name that they refer to as third class, but that was actually really nice compared to other boats from what I read. I know it's, it looks a little dingy and a little bit, you know, close quarters and really no windows or anything, but it was actually pretty nice comparatively. Hmm. So then we just get right into it. We get to the big day, April 14th, Sunday. I forget. Okay. Also, by the way, my notes are a little scattered. I wasn't able to watch this movie all in one sitting. So I'm trying to remember what some of the, I watched it like the first hour and then I had to watch the second hour another time. So I'm trying to remember the exact order of everything, but yeah, at some point uh, they referred to as being, you know, steady as a rock and, you know, the pencil is just still and smooth sailing quite literally. And actually what I thought was really cool. And I, I really do highly recommend everyone to check out the Colonel Archibald Gracie book. Um, I'm only like three chapters through it's not too, too long, but he described his day of April 14th and, you know, the Psalms that they sing in the church on the boat, they have kind of that church on the boat scene in the 1997 version of Titanic, but also he talked about, you know, working out in the gyms and the trainers. And the thing that was most striking to me was when he said that the morning of the 14th, he was in this warm, luxurious pool 
bath, you know, on this big boat. And then what, like 11 hours later, 12 hours later, you're swimming for your life in a freezing ocean. That really put things in perspective for me, at least to go from comfort to just utter loss in such a short period of time. Uh, So really, really interesting to read the day of stuff. And then we're introduced to, I don't want to call it like the antagonist boat, but a little bit, the Californian. It is the antagonist though. So this is really tricky. I mean, and this is where I'm like, just psychologically, I think this is just a very fascinating tale of human communication skills. And I think that that is another huge takeaway of this transparency and urgency and all that with talking with one another. So the Californian, that's another ship. They're the closest one to Titanic. They're a little bit further ahead. They're getting ice warnings from some ships ahead of them. And then they end up passing it on to Titanic. It's a British steamship, definitely known for its in action during this disaster. It's pretty noted that they were the only one who could have seen Titanic or its rockets during the sinking. And from what I researched, I saw various numbers, but I kind of saw that there was a conclusive agreement that the boat was about five or six miles away. Are you joking? No. I've seen numbers that are more, but I mean, you guys, that's like... That's... That's right, that is so so doable. That is so doable. Yeah. So the Californian was captained by Stanley Lord, who declined to see this movie because he heard of the unfavorable depiction of his portrayal. And then there was radio operator Cyril Evans. That's another key player in this story. They never received any criminal charges or anything. They weren't necessarily reprimanded. But there was a very large black mark on their names after this happened. Yeah, I mean, how could there not be? I feel like if you're seeing a boat just shooting off a bunch of rockets, it just suddenly stopped. And it's shooting off a bunch of rockets. And it's clearly trying to send a bunch of signals. And you're just like, oh, they must be having a party over there. They must be having a grand old time. What did they think was happening? Well, we'll, we'll cut. They do get into it during the movie. So there, you know, that's, what's so tricky about this. I don't think there was malicious intent. It's not like they were like, right. Oh, they're sinking. I don't feel like it. I think (laughs) that there was just misunderstanding, miscommunication and lack of maybe being more forward in communication and being transparent with each other. So, and assumptions, this is another big lesson and not assuming anything. So it's not good. It's not good. But also I don't think it was done in a sense where they purposely meant for everyone to die. Right. No, I mean, obviously everyone knows the Carpathia as the ship to help save the survivors of the Titanic. Now, it, had they known the Titanic was sinking, of course they would have come running. They could have, <laughs> this tiny right. little steamboat, is that what you said it was? Uh, yes, it's a, it's a British steamboat. Yeah, this little tiny old steamboat that could, could have saved so <laughs> many lives and it would have just gone down in steamship, history. Steamship, rather, steamship. Or steamship. It <laughs> could have gone down in history as just, such a fantastic thing but they just didn't understand 
They just didn't get it. Yeah. And we can get into theories and stuff a little later because they do show their perspective, which I appreciate, I guess. Um, Because again, this isn't like, this isn't one person's fault. This was a ripple domino effect of a lot of people's faults at hand. Yeah. I think someone said this before, but just the Titanic was meant to sink that night. It was going to sink. There were so many things just in nature working against it that even even if they had everything else right, it, something was going to go wrong. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I like we saw in the beginning of the movie, it was I mean, it was called the unsinkable ship. The irony, <laughs> the irony of, of that happening for that to be a news story. I just, I couldn't even imagine reading that or let alone being in the situation myself, but just unreal, unreal. Yeah. Moving on. So back to the messaging, this message was delivered about the ice to the captain right away. We see that it was delivered. I believe that that's what actually happened. That was a little bit earlier-ish on in the night. They're kind of getting in an icier place. I believe that area, that strip is called Iceberg Alley. Yeah, not good. So we also see that there are a lot of private messages being sent at Cape Race, which to my knowledge is accurate. But the Californian sends another warning. So Californian is putting out warnings out there quite a bit. But these private messages are being sent out. So then we get back to the livelihood of the ship. You see some partying going down below in the third class. Looks like a really good time. The immigrants, they're singing, they're dancing. I feel like you see this very much highlighted in 1997 Titanic. <laughs> um, like, like it's, it's a good time. It's cute. Like the, the main guy is like super cute. And then the girl is really pretty who's an immigrant. And it's just, it's like romantic. You can absolutely see where this inspired things and pulls you in as an audience. But then I love the juxtaposition where you cut right away to the upper class and they're having a fancy dinner in the fancy restaurant. You have the violins stringing away, the nice dining outfits. And I'm really impressed that in 1958, they were able to clearly point out the disparities here. And that to me also gives us a really authentic feel and a very progressive feel where you can watch this today and it makes sense to you. Also watching this part, I can totally understand why the 1997 story would be intrigued to explore a romantic relationship between two people of different classes, because this is one of those rare times where, I mean, while you are likely probably to stick with your own class on these boats, there is probably a slight opportunity to intermix at some point on deck or so. Oh yeah. I mean, I know this is later in the movie, but after the ice from the iceberg, it falls off right. all of the all the lower class, uh, everyone uh, is playing with it. And all of the upper class people, uh, the guy wants to go down and play. He wants to go down and play with the ice too. And the lady's like, oh no, no, we mustn't. Exactly. Yeah. There's totally a huge, heavy theme of classism here. And that is very much a big real life takeaway that happens, which we'll get into from some of Molly Brown's quotes and stories. But yeah, speaking of Molly Brown, I'm sorry, Margaret Brown, Margaret, speaking of Margaret Brown, we meet her and she tells the story of her husband. Oh, by the way, this is available for free on YouTube. So definitely take advantage of that if you can. Um, I'm not going to lie. I put on my subtitles just so I could get 
all the names and things that were being said. Did she say the F word or did she say filthy? (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny that you bring that up. I do not remember. I just remember kind of, I was taking notes and then I was looking up and I was looking at the subtitle and then it just said F. Yeah, it was just like dash. And I I was just like, wait a minute, did I miss her saying fuck? I couldn't remember. So I, I couldn't explain, but I thought she said filthy. That's, but maybe I just made that up. No, I thought it definitely sounded like, you know, the bad one. <laughs> it shocked my system because, you know, the American production code and American movies, we have a kind of a strict code of conduct with language and violence and all this stuff and so I was just like not expecting that at all if it did happen again I don't really know what was said but that's what it sounded like at least Uh, but yeah Molly Brown such a character yeah she was actually headed home if you're just curious why she was on this boat, I mean, the, the, the Browns were really rich. Her husband struck gold and they were very rich and her, um, her grandson actually was a baby and he was sick. And so she decided to go home to go see him. Interesting. I did not know that. That's very good to know. The father of that baby is the son that she talks about in the 1997 Titanic when she's fitting Jack and the suit that, you know, Larry would wear yeah it all comes together all comes together lots of connections <laughs> but oh what do we have here titanic gets another message from the californian wrote down the iceberg report here but then the messages that come next are personal messages and i believe they're placed like above the iceberg warning but yeah so it looks like these ice messages are just being discarded left and right Phillips is the operator on duty at this point, uh, which we have more to say there in a second. So then Lightoller, I believe his character says that they did not receive any more ICE reports, but he gives the warning to the lookouts to be on the lookout for ICE. So it's not like they did any action. It was just kind of like, okay, proceed with caution. So Californian sees more ICE fields. And they're not there for it. They're not feeling it. They do not want to work with it. They, uh, again, go to deliver a message to the Titanic. Lightoller, all the while, is making the rounds. And then we proceed in telegram warfare, basically. Phillips, the Titanic operator, sends a message of, shut up, I'm busy, keep out, I'm working Cape Race. So he was trying to send out private messages of the passengers. Cyril Evans, the Californian operator, is like, well, I'm over it, and decides to turn the switchboard off and go to bed. So this is really interesting because this is kind of considered the big point at which everything could have been different. So to my knowledge, actually, in real life, Cyril Evans stayed on a little bit longer. He did, he wasn't just like, well, F you. <laughs> like, you can just die. Uh, no, to my knowledge, he stayed on a little bit longer, waited to hear anything, um, and just didn't. It was kind of like, well, no use and just waiting for them. So he just switched it off. Yeah. Um, you know, I can imagine, like, I think I would be pissed if I was trying to save someone's life and they were like, shut up, like, just stay out of my way. 
Um, I'd be like, all right, whatever. But when you look at Philip's perspective, actually, a big differentiator for their messages was the prefix of MSG for the telegrams, which stood for master service gram. So anything with MSG in front of it had to be reported to the bridge. California's messages about the icebergs and ice reports did not have MSG in front of it. So it was basically kind of like saying it's not urgent. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. And then it was really 10 minutes later that Titanic hit the iceberg. 10 minutes? Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. So, I mean, this to me is a huge lesson in a lot of things. First of all, it made me reflect on this realization that we are so obsessed with instantaneous connection and communication and socializing over technology. And I've got to say, I think when I first read about all of this and it was like, okay, well, Phillips was in charge. He was like, you know, shut up, F you, leave me alone. I was like, this is all Phillips fault and all that. But you know what? (laughs) Honestly, I really put myself in his shoes and I was kind of thinking about it. And we as a people collectively now can't get off of our phones. I mean, like we can, but we're, they're pretty much on us all the time. This is the only like form of text messaging available in 1912. And this is the one person in charge of getting it all out there. That is so stressful. Yeah. So I can, I can totally see why he'd be stressed. And if there's not a, you know, a star in front of it, like, Hey, this is urgent. Get it to the captain. I might just be like, stop sending me this if it's not urgent, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Well, and some of you might be curious. Well, maybe, maybe no one is curious, but this was another big learning thing for me during my research. So the operators, Phillips and Bride on Titanic, uh, they were Marconi employees. So basically they were like sent out from Marconi to work for Titanic. The Californian was also using the Marconi system. Marconi wireless system. Okay. Marconi. This was the main telegraphing wireless operating service in place. Uh, And it's actually a really important point in history, even if we're looking at like Apple or Facebook or other, you know, social networking. Marconi was really the first company to do quick social networking available to the people at the time. And so the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company, it was essentially a monopoly by 1900. And they actually threatened to sue or sue anyone who tried to also use wireless communication and they wouldn't like lease out their technology. Eventually this caught on to countries and they were a little concerned and regulations were put into place for Marconi and other wireless companies. But the fact that it's a monopoly actually does kind of matter. Some of you might be like, well, why? Well, here's the issue. Marconi had a policy that basically said Marconi could not communicate with non-Marconi vessels. So like they could only have wireless communication with other ships using Marconi services. That doesn't seem right. (laughs) That doesn't seem fair. Here's where it was an issue. The Carpathia, which was a Marconi using ship, could not then provide information to the SS Burma offering help because Burma didn't use a Marconi system. I believe they changed this policy after the sinking. This is one of those outcomes. 
but essentially Titanic could have gotten another ship's help, but they were not allowed to, I think, because of the Marconi system, to my knowledge, if I'm reading everything correctly. So that's wow. very dangerous as well. The monopoly, the business standpoint of things. That is just so insane. How, how do they have that monopoly? I mean, I feel like that's just a safety issue. That is yeah. just an issue. Boats sink all the time. Yeah. So a huge issue in communication going down here between these two ships. So we get to see more of the people. People are getting really comfy in bed. The kids are getting tucked in. Like, and we know what's going to happen, which makes it just worse. And then we hear the famous iceberg data headline. And I just felt so anxious and terrorized watching that scene and the actor's facial expressions of like, turn, turn, turn. But this is a big boat, like a big <laughs> boat. It's like hard enough to turn a suburban. I can't even imagine like trying to turn a boat. So I just, I felt absolutely terrified. We see that the ship hits the iceberg. Ice starts falling on the decks. Workers in the engine room below, the water's coming in. <laughs> I, I want to give some credit. Or I just felt really, really horrible. Like really, really, really horrible. For the poor guy working there at the bottom of the ship who said it was his birthday. birthday. I wanted to die. I died a little inside of that line because I don't know. I mean, I feel like I know what his fate was. Uh, It's pretty much everyone's fate, but that was just so, that was devastating for no reason. Yep. No, absolutely. And actually um, the wireless operator Phillips, uh, his birthday was April 11th. So right after they set sail. So he had just had his birthday as well. Just (sighs) terrible, terrible, terrible. I I thought this was also interesting to me. The iceberg. I think I've heard some conspiracy theories that like, you know, they sank it on purpose. I don't know. It was an iceberg. Like it was like definitively an iceberg and there was an iceberg and that's what happened. So I I am not a physicist. I am not going to even attempt to explain like the logistics of the chambers to prevent it from sinking or anything um all i know is more than the capacity that could be hit were hit but also like a car when it crashes it's supposed you know it's designed to embrace the crash head-on but the boat didn't hit the iceberg head-on it hit it at the side and underneath so nothing like absorbed the crash it just punctured that hole I think I guess I did hear that hypothesis like years ago where if the Titanic had just hit the iceberg head-on it would have been fine I don't know if that's true but what do you think it would have been maybe because then I feel like it would have hit less chambers but yeah. again, I I don't know. I I, I don't know the, the logistics of the architecture technology. <laughs> but I have heard that it was really like the, the angle was also a big part of the doom. Not that it was just an iceberg. Because again, like unsinkable ship. There were a lot of things put into place for it not to sink. But here it goes. It happened. 
it was kind of cool to see the not cool, but like the ice coming on the deck. That I mean, that seems to check out across all boards of testimonies. This movie, 1997 Titanic, in Archibald Gracie's memoir, he remembers someone joking about taking home ice as a souvenir and all that. So sad. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that seems like it really, really did happen. But here's the thing. I feel like there wasn't an immediate sense of panic in anyone, even like the boiler room crew, the, you know, oh, it's my birthday. Like, oh, what luck. And then, you know, people kind of seem like they're waking up from it and stuff and asking and they're going around being like, oh, just a little trouble. Like, it's fine. You know, here is another really interesting, like psychological trauma things to think about. There is something to be said for keeping people calm, but there's also something to be said for keeping people conscientious. And um, I don't exactly know. I'm not the leader of a, you know, cruise ship. I don't exactly know what the right move is, but I feel like you need to diffuse the situation while also being like, oh, we're having people come aboard. And I don't know. But I mean, it all did happen pretty quick, I guess. Like 20, 25 minutes later, they started uncovering the lifeboats and stuff. That is something I was curious about while watching this movie was just, I wonder at which point everything changed and everyone started to scramble because it all did happen so quickly. Did it, I just, I wonder what the switch was and at what point it happened. I'm going to bet. Well, I think for the captain, it was definitely when Andrews was like, it's got two hours. Okay. So we actually had to stop recording right before this. Um, A little bit of a personal emergency came up. Nothing huge, but we had to stop recording for a second. Um, So we're actually recording this at a separate time, the remainder of this episode. So hopefully it doesn't (laughs) sound too disjointed. We're going to try to pick up where we left off. But thank you so much for your patience and sticking in there with us. Yeah, just crazy times. Not as crazy as, you know, the Titanic, but... um, (laughs) Definitely not. <laughs> Crazy nonetheless. Okay, so I think we were just at Mr. Andrews had to assess the damage of the boat. And it's not good. Not looking good. There's a gash of 300 feet below the waterline. And he's just lays it on straight. She's going to sink, Captain. And you get like, you know, of course, she can't sink. She's unsinkable. It, I feel like that would be my mindset too. Well, yeah, because this whole time, all the papers are saying, yeah, everyone about town is saying, oh, this the great Titanic, it could never sink. It's like they were manifesting it to happen almost. Oh, my God. You're like really testing the universe there. Yeah. But no, it's it's really, really jarring. So basically, he lays it down that they have another hour and a half, which like, that's really not that much time. I mean, that's shorter than this movie. Mm -hmm. This is the part that made my heart drop when they said that there's room for about 1200 and there's like, you know, 2200 or so. I forget. I forget the exact amount, but there's basically only enough room on the lifeboards for half of the passengers. I mean, how, how was that allowed? How, how was that allowed? You know what's crazy? Okay, again, for my light research, that was actually more boats 
than the Board of Trade regulations required. So they actually had more than the minimum that was required. But like, I just, call me crazy. I just don't think that should be allowed. How, did they think that boats just never sank? I don't know. I don't know why it was like that. Um, Obviously, this definitely pinged on the Board of Trade Regulations radar and they switched that policy. I always thought that, you know, Titanic was so unsinkable. Why have enough lifeboats for everyone? It's like a waste of time and money. It's not necessary. But no, actually, all boats had a very few amount of lifeboat seating on them. And Titanic actually went a little bit beyond what was necessary. Um, So that is like horrifying. If I were a passenger, that'd be horrifying. I mean, I wouldn't know. It's not like I asked, like, I mean, again, I've never been on a cruise, but it's not like I've ever been like, you know, do we have enough lifeboats for everyone? Or if I go on a plane, I'm not like, hey, we all have life jackets under the seat, right? We're not going to get like surprised. (laughs) You weren't like Rose in the 1997 Titanic (laughs) when she asked why there aren't enough seats for everyone on the lifeboats. I don't know if I would have been. Maybe I would have been. I guess you can't know until you're in that situation. But, you know, at least Rose saw that this was not right. And unfortunately, the world learned this lesson in retrograde. So not good, not good. Like my heart really did stop when I heard that. And you could, and I thought the acting was phenomenal, especially Captain Smith. He really sold, like you're the leader of the ship, you know? And I feel like I could feel that all on me as if I was in his shoes. Well, especially when you just know that's your last day, for sure, as a captain, because the captain has to go down with the ship. So to just know that you've got about maybe an hour or two left of your life. Oh and my gosh, it makes me so sick to my stomach. Oh, it's horrible. It's just, you know, your device. You just, there's nothing you can do about it. Yep. So we run into our next issue here. They're getting the lifeboats ready and sending for help, but like trying to contact help. So Phillips and Bry, the operators, if I'm trying to even remember everyone's name <laughs> from, from the time lapse we had. Uh, but yeah, Phillips and Bry, the operators, they are now both working their little tails off, trying to send out calls for help. And the issue is the Californian had shut their board off. So they essentially were not getting the messages slash ignoring it, kind of. Yeah. So there's a really interesting line of, you know, try SOS. That's the new call. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who is curious about SOS and that situation. Okay. I thought, I mean, maybe I'm a geek, but I thought this was interesting. At that point in time, there wasn't a standardized call for help. Like if you were in trouble out in the wilderness or at sea or anything like that. Now the Marconi telegraph system, they used a code called CQD as a distress call starting in 1904. And that stood for CQ distress. But again, not everyone using Marconi might know that. SOS was actually relatively new as a distress call. And I actually just learned that it does not stand for save our ship or save our souls. It's actually just random letters that started from German distress calls because in Morse code, it was just really easy to write out. So in Morse code, SOS is three dots, three dashes, three dots. And that's a lot easier to both 
right out and to understand under peril, essentially. So people were liking that system because it was just a lot quicker to understand and to signal. Wow. I didn't know that. I see. I like that. The geeky fun facts too. (laughs) So that's crazy. I always thought it stood for save our shit. Yeah, me too. Oh, okay. That's great to know. <laughs> yeah, good to know. And, and uh, yeah, three dots, three dashes, three dots. Wow. I'll have to keep that one locked away. <laughs> yeah, SOS definitely became the standardized approach. Really fast. I also wanted to give props where props are due. Uh, so when they finally contacted the Carpathia, I don't know if this was at this point. It's just at this point in my notes, at mm. least. The guy who plays the telegraph guy on the Carpathia, who goes to warn everyone on the ship yes! about it. He deserves an Oscar. He acted his part <laughs> out. It's like, it, it's such a small role, but it's like the guy who's working at the r- fancy restaurant in the museum in the Batman movie. He acted his heart out in that one short scene he had. And so did this guy. And I just want him to, out there to know in the universe, he did great. I saw what he did and I respect it. It's like right around this part. There's kind of a few scenes intermeshed, but I wrote the same exact note, cut to the Carpathia. They get the distress call. He's my favorite character or one of my favorite characters. He is a man who sees an emergency and is like, we need to act on this. And he's (laughs) that dude (laughs) rushing to the captain. I just, the acting was great. I think the character was great. I think we should all aspire to have that sense of urgency <laughs> when there's an issue that comes up. He was inspiring for sure. He was great. Yeah. But um, speaking of which, we do get a few different scenes of the different people and things kind of happening during this. Um, you're seeing a lot of language barriers too in the treatment of people of different classes. So like when you see the first class passengers being told they're so gentle with them, like, Oh, you know, just put on your life jackets. It's just so, you know, it's a silly little thing. Like just, you know, come on, just get warm. Oh, it'll be a thing. But the lower class, they're like pushing and shoving them. And I, I mean, I totally believe that that's went down. And if you, especially if you're taking into Lord's account of the third class passengers, and then you're taking into the account of Archibald Gracie's and you're combining it out, you're getting a really full and comprehensive look at what this was like. It's really, again, kind of unnerving to the system to watch the first class passengers all calm and thinking this can't sink. Uh, But side by side, you have the boiler room with the flooding happening. One of my favorite shots actually was when it was very still in the dining room area and the serving tray table just slowly starts moving that was really spooky to me that was spooky oh my gosh uh it gave me chills it still does it just makes it very real in your mind just like the water being tilted in the glasses in the dining room just you know it's starting to it's starting to change Oh, crazy, crazy, crazy. But again, we're running into some issues with our friend, the Californian. So I, I can't remember who said it, which character said it, but they're like, mm, I feel like there's a ship 10 miles away that we can see. And I think it's the Californian and it's not answering. Uh, so there's definitely that issue in mind. And meanwhile, I'm pretty sure Phillips and Bride were continuing to contact them via telegraph. Okay, so the band, the famous, 
famous band tries to defuse the situation, keep everyone calm? They continue to be my favorite characters ever. And um, I know you, you did your research. Was that real? Did they play to the very end? Okay, so this is another myth legend situation. Oh, no. No, no, no. I think it's it's a little bit mixed. So the rumor is, and I'm pretty sure that you even see it in this movie as well. The rumor is, is that when it's about to completely sink and go down, that they played the song Nearer My God to Thee. From what I've read, no one can definitively recollect actually hearing that song. It seems like it was kind of a rumor. I think I read one thing that was kind of like, okay, well, if they played that, it was like, you know, definitely a sign that we were all going to die. <laughs> um, but from what I heard, they really did play nonstop and they played very cheerful music. Oh, oh. I know that they went to heaven. If there's a heaven, they <laughs> went to it. Because just for them to know, knowingly sacrifice their lives just to calm all the people down before they were definitely going to die, those were some of the best people in existence. Oh, absolutely. I even, I have it later in my notes somewhere. I'm not going to go too crazy and get lost in my timeline. But to make art in the face of death for people's, emotions that to me is just so noble it really is so I'm just I commend them highly and I think that they I mean they've obviously earned a place in history they're in every adaptation but I think that we all owe a gratitude to their courage as well and there are some like okay I don't I don't want to be mean here but some like really awful people here being really just stuck up and privileged like the one lady of oh I don't want to get there I'll catch my death of cold it's like fine fine. don't get on it (laughs) that's fine (laughs) oh my gosh um I think I think this is where that father was asking Andrews like give it to me straight what's going down and he gives it to the wife um yeah. And it's just, again, you're seeing the families and it's just really heartbreaking. I think it's the dad that says the line to Andrews of we may be in the same boat later. Like, oh, yes. You know, we're both going to be in trouble. Like, oh, I still get just chills. Margaret Brown, all star MVP of this ship, uh, being super helpful sport. That is the way to diffuse the situation with humor while getting the task completed. The one lady's like, I don't want to wear my life belt. Like, this is ugly and you know for her to just like put it on her and be like oh it's the latest thing like just do it <laughs> and she is fantastic yeah she really is so I to my knowledge I believe from what I've heard she was really encouraging with everything and she, actually that's a really significant part of survival being positive and keeping a positive attitude and just like the belief and everything will be okay is actually a huge factor in getting through trauma. So that is certainly a thing I think we can all learn from her here. It's terrible though, because the lower class passengers are still being withheld. I, I, oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, here's the thing that sucks again, not to like completely hate on the Californian, because again, I think there was just poor communication 
but let's say everything had worked out, they could have reused the boats they had and gotten everyone there in time, you know, and wow. like released the third class passengers maybe earlier and stuff. It's just really, really difficult. Um, <laughs> speaking of the Californian, the Titanic is now like, okay, they are not answering our telegraphs. We are going to fire rockets and they have fired six rockets. And the Californian is definitely aware, like they see the rockets. And here's where I'm going to give Californian a little bit of grace, or I get to see their point of view a little more kind of, but not really. (laughs) Um, So they say they think that Titanic is signaling to other ships behind them about the ice, (laughs) which like, okay, I get that. I don't know if I would necessarily, I mean, but six rockets? I get it's like two in the morning and everyone's really tired. And but yeah, six is a lot. And you would think that you would use telegrams, you know? And this is maybe the point that they should have switched their system back on if it wasn't on um, because they were using the, okay, so they were communicating. They were using the Morse lamp instead of the wireless telegraph, which... I don't know. It works, but I feel like the telegraph would have been a lot quicker and clearer. Yeah. I mean, all it takes is a second to get back in there and turn it on. I don't know. I I don't know if the rockets had different purposes back then than they do today. No, I feel like it, (laughs) I feel like rockets mean I'm in trouble. Yeah. It means all over here, there's an issue. (laughs) It doesn't mean like, oh, hey, boom, boom, boom. There might be some ice. Just watch out for that. No, I, I just, I don't think that is what anyone would do to signal that there's ice because that's because it's not a clear message. So, and that's why there needs to be better interpretations. Rocket rockets mean I'm in trouble. Telegraphs mean, Hey, just friendly (laughs) reminder. There's some ice on the way. I don't know. I feel like I'm still going to give the Californian a little bit of grief for that. I will. And and honestly, so when I was reading Archibald Gracie's book or his thoughts and memoir, he was highly critical of the use of more slamps over the wireless telegraph in the book. Like I got a huge sense of bitterness. He was just saying, you know, why would you not use the most superior and up-to-date technology to communicate? Yeah. I don't know. Especially when it was at their disposal. Right. I just, yeah, again, I'm sure I wasn't there. I don't know how I would act in this situation, but at the same time, I just feel like there's a few red flags pointing to something being wrong. And I don't know, it could have totally changed the game if they had used the Marconi system to communicate. And then we get more sad scenes. The dad, that dad that we were talking about earlier, that was like, we might be on the same boat. Um, the husband to honor Blackman's character. He is saying goodbye to his kids. And I just got physically ill at this scene. Like I am praying that somehow that character made it, but that was just absolutely devastating for them to kind of know that that was the last time they would all see each other. It's just really upsetting. It's just really upsetting because everyone was saying their goodbyes. The woman that were standing by their men, refusing to leave. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what I would do in that situation. I love Ben. 
regular time <laughs> visitor on this podcast, Ben. I, I and I like to believe that I would stand by my man, but who knows in this situation? Who knows? Here's where I would be screwed. Um, and I know I wouldn't live if I had my dog with me because they didn't let, they didn't let dogs on the boat. So there were people that stayed back with their pets. And so I would be a goner. I I would be, I would be a goner too. If I had a pet, I really would be that. I mean, I would probably try to, if it was small enough, I would try to smuggle it on, maybe dress it up like a person who knows. So I'm really glad that neither this nor the 1997 one show the animals struggling because that I probably would have had to shut the movie off. To be me too. I was actually worried going into this movie because they really did not hold back on all of the really sad stuff. So I was just waiting to see some animals on there. Uh, but I mean, it is still very sad knowing that all of this is happening to humans and the band is continuing to play the cheerful music. It, okay, so there's one scene where they take the man out of the boat, right? Because they're like women and children only. Mm-hmm. And here's another highly controversial thing that's been criticized. If actually Lytoler in particular, the policy was really women and children only with like a guy or two to help steer and guide the boat on the lifeboats. Right. Because of this, that's, why a lot of the boats were only filled to like half capacity or so. And they didn't, they didn't even fill up the lifeboats to full capacity. So it was just, I mean, disorganized. Yes. But also that policy, and that was an old maritime policy to my knowledge. It's like just supposed to be rooted in chivalry. I don't think it was like an actual law. I don't think, but I think it was an unspoken rule. Mm-hmm. But instead of women and children first, they really mostly subscribe to women and children only. And that played a huge factor in why a lot of people's lives were lost, honestly. So again, I think that's another miscommunication. Maybe I don't know who made what call. I've heard that the captain made the call to Lightoller, but I wasn't there. I don't know. But it seems like that was the understood practice. And actually, a huge critic of this policy is Margaret Brown. That was actually her biggest takeaway after. And I want to find a quote of hers. I I can't remember if this is her quote or just one that's like associated with her. But um, she thought that women should demand a change in the unwritten sea law so that all will have an equal chance for life. Uh, Men too. It's actually one of the rare instances in history where I feel like women have the privilege. But... You know, Uh, but I think it's really commendable that Margaret's like, you know, that those just should have been filled to the brim as much as they could have. Yeah. I mean, I think even the boats that were like in the very beginning that were filled to max capacity, they could have thrown an extra person or two or three in there. I'm sure it would not, that that would have a a much better chance of staying afloat than the Titanic currently. I agree. So I think it wouldn't have been the end of the world if they threw a couple extra people in each life though. But then they just decided to fill half of the capacity. Yeah. I just, oh, it's, ugh. it's terrible. Um, so terrible. I get an extra scare, I guess, when they say that the guns are coming out and Oh my God. I I was dying at the part where uh, 
like if I were a guy, they're like, oh, are there any seamen out there? We need another one for this boat. I'm a yachtsman. I'll go. <laughs> well, I just, I was shocked. There were so many men behind that one guy who offered it up. I would be leaping at the chance. I don't know a single <laughs> thing about both. I would be like, yes, I am the captain of a boat back in my hometown. I, I drive boats all the time. I know exactly how to row. How were they not all leaping? at this opportunity. No, oh. I absolutely, you bet your buttons. I would have said that I was uh, a yachtsman, a sailor, a <laughs> seaman, a whatever, but I think it's actually cool. This actually was a real person. And I think Archibald Gracie documented it in his book. I think that's where I read it, but um, yeah, that really happened. They asked, wow. um, you know, we need a seaman. And he's like, I'm a yachtsman. It was um, Major Arthur Hushin of Toronto that said that. Wow. Yeah. Good for him. Good for him. He has a sense of urgency about him that I appreciate. <laughs> and he really, and actually he really did have to climb down the rope. They're like, all right, if you're stupid enough to climb down that rope, you can go. I would absolutely go for it. I'm not like, you know, the strongest, most athletic <laughs> person in the world. But... This is like, he knew, he knew this was his last chance. No men were getting on those lifeboats. You might as well take your chances on that rope. Yup. 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 Um, okay. So the Krauses, these were the people, the couple, um, Isidore and Ida Strauss that, uh, he owned Macy's or co-owned Macy's. Mm -hmm. And this was true. She did decide to stay back with her husband. She's like, you know, we're doing this together. We've always been together. Um, and it inspires the one newlywed girl to also stay with her husband. Yeah. Again, that's really, really, yeah, it's really, really strong. So Actually, this raised an interesting question of where do teenage boys fall into the equation? Because they were like, okay, he's 13. Does that count as a kid? Is that seen as a man? You're getting to some real gray areas in terms of who's worthy to be saved. And so they let him on. They're like, okay, you can watch after your mom and stuff. It's still kind of yeah. sexist, but um it really, it may, it makes you think, it just makes you think how terrible it is deciding in that moment, what lives are worthy of what, but I, speaking of kids, I was actually also taken very aback by the boat workers smoking cigarette and they were so young. Like, I mean, to me seemed so young and yeah. the priorities were still on conduct and being a staff member. And they're, you know, young, young men and they're probably confused as well and there's like these kids that belong to the upper class passengers that are getting the free ride on the boat and I don't know it was just really like could they have been saved because I mean they were young too I don't know it was just Hmm. makes you think it's just like total bs with the boats not filling up and that one boat there was like what 10 people on it oh my god if that there was maybe five there was no one on that boat. And well, and that's it too. It seems like there was a lot of action on the one side of the boat, but not the other side of the boat. And again, I don't know where the lifeboats were placed, but again, I know it's chaotic and you're literally about to die, but I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like yeah. that boat could have been filled up. Something tells me that that was a very real thing that happened. Yeah. All it would take would be for them to just one person run to the other side and be like, hey, people who want to live, get on over here. And then they could have filled that boat up in a heartbeat. Oh, 
terrible. Um, so we go back to the telegraph room and I think this is really cool. I think that Jack Phillips gets a little bit of, you know, a bad rap for sending the shut up, keep out. I'm delivering these personal communication messages, which then probably sparked a defensive mood from the other operator on the Californian. But from what I've read, Jack Phillips just really did keep working nonstop, trying to talk to other ships, trying to reach out for help. He kept working until the power went out. Uh, So spoiler, Phillips does not live, but Bride, the other telegraph operator did live. And he said that he was really, really profoundly touched by how hard Phillips kept working to try to save the boat and get help. Yeah. I mean, I don't place any blame on him. He, he just had, he was doing his job. He was really stressed. I mean, I would probably be annoyed too if this other boat was just nonstop annoying me when I was trying to (laughs) do my job and I would probably tell them to shut up too but and uh, what really makes me upset to think about him is just the amount of guilt he must have felt in knowing that like he could have made the difference if he did listen to them and if he didn't just push them away then I mean he probably was thinking about that till his final moments yeah it's really really sad it's so sad but um you know i think we all make mistakes or do something wrong and in this case it just happened to be a perfect storm of missteps and mistake and miscommunication but you know i don't think he's a bad person i think he really tried his best to do what he could and it's just it's so sad then the communications with the carpathia they're trying so hard to get there and they are so far away like 50 something miles and it's just devastating you can see how heartbroken everyone is at that um more lifeboat stuff uh we get the line still here miss evans oh we'll get you on the next boat that was actually based off of archibald gracie's friend i think her name was edith evans and she actually did not end up making it on a lifeboat so then we get another band scene and this is very much kept alive and well in the 1997 version where they're about to break it up and they're like, well, we did it. But then they decide to keep on going. I, I, I don't know the exact happenings of what happened, but that's really touching to stay on together. I could write a whole essay about how much <laughs> I love this band. Just to, And it's, it's always the violinist the violinist he's like i'm gonna keep playing and his boys they're not gonna leave him they're not gonna abandon ship because that is their boy and they're going to play to the end together and i love it and it just shows their just their connection as friends as a band they just they're gonna keep going and i just oh i love them i love them i love them always i love them too it's really phenomenal we get some more really inspiring moments, I guess, or just, I don't know, the final hour, final 30 minute moments. Uh, Mr. Andrews gives advice to the couple where they're like, no, we're staying together and all of that. And I thought that was really, really kind of him in the darkest hour. I think Andrews at this point has decided that he will not go on living, but for him, I think that it was really good advice on his part to give to the couple to get on the rope and wear something white and 
get away as soon as you could from the boat. Yeah. Though I, if I'm remembering correctly, it didn't work out for them. Right? It did not work out for them. Um, I think they tried, but it was again, just too late. I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I would just give up sooner if the lifeboats were looking slim. And if I would just try again, this is not just like cold water. This is like sucking the life out of you water. So you can't even, I, I have a hard time imagining you could just swim to the closest boat you could find. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I like the one move of like throwing down chairs and stuff or bringing something floatable with you. Yeah, I thought that was smart. I thought, I mean, it didn't work out for him, but I think (laughs) if you were, I think if you were able to get those chairs together and like slap on two life jackets on it, I think that could make a pretty handy device, I think. Yeah, I don't know for for sure. sure, I could like, I have to imagine that there were flotation devices somewhere. But yeah. maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but then we get the the safe lifeboats in the distance watching the ship go down. I cannot even imagine how traumatizing that would be and the survivor's guilt that I would have. I wasn't even there and I have survivor's guilt <laughs> over watching I mean, that. And that is such a horrible but iconic scene when they're safely away in their lifeboats and the lights go on in the Titanic because I, I mean it was pitch black outside it's the middle of the ocean you can't really see anything except through moonlight and so to, just for myself watching the scene to see the boat going up uh, that makes me want to vomit that makes nope. me so sick to my stomach so for them to see that and then it just be gone in an instant when the lights go and all you hear is screaming. That's oh, you have PTSD forever. That's horrifying. Yeah, very traumatizing. Yeah. So um Margaret Brown, however, is like not having this. She's all we've got to go back and save them. There's, you know, this boat's halfway filled. We can fit 20 more people on. We've got to go. And the quartermaster's like, no, they'll all climb on board and sink us and we'll die. And like, I get where he's coming from, but also I, I, I don't know if I could live with myself just sitting there watching it, you know? No, I, uh, I think they, that guy, he's a bad dude. Maybe he could have <laughs> gotten overboard. Who knows? Whatever. But I, I just, I love the line where Margaret Brown just says, oh, some of the ladies can help row too. Can't we girls? It'll keep us warm. <laughs> like, yeah, that would be my, that was my first thought too. The woman can row. They Attitude can get in there. is everything, 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 everything. And I think that is a huge factor in how she survived. Um, but yeah, Definitely. absolutely. Why not row and keep warm? I don't know. It's probably a good use of energy, but maybe not. Maybe you have to conserve your energy. I don't know. But I do know that I would really struggle to just sit there and listen. It's better than just sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, if you want um, a real quote from Margaret Brown about this incident, uh, she said, our boat was in charge of a quartermaster who was an incompetent bully and a coward. There was room for 10 or 12 more. We urged him to go back and he refused. We had in our boat one creature. I will not call him a man. The quartermaster talked impudently to me and when tired of his complaints, I threatened to have him thrown overboard. So that's her. That kind of woman. She also was thinking about throwing him overboard. That would have saved up an extra seat too. 
she, she is awesome. I love her. She's pretty boss. Yeah. So that, that interaction actually did happen. There was a little bit of a scuffle between Margaret Brown and the quartermaster. Uh, yeah. So unsinkable. I mean, she's called unsinkable Molly Brown. It's because her spirit was so high and, you know, nothing could get her down. Even this silly quartermaster. Uh, yeah. But we see a lot. I mean, we see some terrible attitudes on these lifeboats and it kind of sucks to think that like, I always say it sucks to think that those are the lives that were saved, but it's like, I don't know. You have a lot of snobbery, a lot of privilege. Like, no, I don't think so. I don't want to go back or I don't want to switch to boats to make more room. Cause that was actually a really smart move. Like bring the boats together and then yeah. consolidate and get more. And people are just like, no, I don't think so. I just, I couldn't even, I, I don't know. I couldn't imagine having that attitude. The entitlement that someone has to feel. Yeah. To hear millions of people, not millions, just thousands of people screaming. And yeah. just they knowing they're going to die and being like, oh, you want me to move to that boat? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think I'm okay right here. Like what? Oh. But yeah, I mean, like you see some sneaky moves too, and I'm not hating on it. I mean, I, if maybe if I were a young guy, I would do the same. I don't know. But the guy dressed up like disguised as a woman, that was certainly a move. Got, I mean, I, the boats were half full. I, I think we have to acknowledge, of course, some guys were going to get on there because there was plenty of room for more people. Uh, yep. So, I mean, it's the final hour. The boat is like officially, officially lights out, synced, sunk. It's pretty much over at this point. And actually, quick note, really the only thing that this movie gets dinged for in terms of inaccuracy is the boat splitting in two. Uh, So when I read Archibald Gracie's recollections of everything, he did not think it split in two. There were a couple of people that also did not think it split in two, but other people like Thayer and a couple others said that they either definitely heard it crack or they saw it crack. It kind of seemed like it depended on where you were on the boat. However, when Robert, aka Bob Ballard, discovered the Titanic wreck in 1985, we got confirmation that it for sure did split in two. I don't think it was necessarily like a huge giant crack. I think it was maybe at a smaller angle, but that is just something to note. And it's, yeah, very, very sad. So we got kind of the light toller in the end here that lifeboat I think it was collapsible lifeboat B uh with bride and Lytoler on it that was a real situation like um and that was the one that Archibald Gracie was on they really did like they were on the boat until it went down and and they were rowing on the underbelly yeah it it was it was flipped over and people were trying to get on and actually so that one quote where the, the guy was like you know we can't fit you and he was like you know what Good luck. God bless. I understand. Apparently that was a real interaction that went down because people were like, yeah, I get it. (laughs) You're, you're on the high ground. Um, which is like shocking to me too, that that's something that went through people's minds. I would still probably be clawing. (laughs) I would be too. I'd be just kind of holding on to it. Like, please let me on. I would make them feel really bad about it. I don't know. I, we're like back to like, 1997 Titanic with Rose and the door and Jack and ooh, yeah 
and and actually there really was a dead passenger like when they checked and one of the guys was dead on the boat underbelly and they switched him out with another person i think oh the look of that man yeah oh and i think that um Gosh, I can't remember if this is in the book or the movie, but basically uh, this, you know, light, this scene is supposed to reflect the book's ending of the world was changed forever. Lightoller and Archibald Gracie were on the lifeboat together talking. And Lightoller, I think, says, you know, why this was different. It was different because we were so sure, because even though it's happened, it's still unbelievable. And I don't think we'll ever feel sure again about anything. That is definitely, to me, a really impactful line and something I think that, I don't know, I think that we can all keep in mind. I don't think it's good to live in fear, but from what I've learned and, you know, survival prep for like my own hiking or whatever, it's just, it's good to keep an air of caution about you in any situation. Um, I've heard that, you know, even if you just go over steps in your head of how to get through a disaster, that's already a huge help, even if you never, ever use them doing a rehearsal in your head of what to do is a huge help in terms of survival. And I think that was an issue in this case. There was such a sense of, I don't know if arrogance is the right word, but like this boat is so elite and perfect and amazing and it's going to be great. I don't know. I could just, I could see that playing a huge part in the disbelief and do they actually even need help? Like that could have been Californians thought like they probably also were thinking this is an unsinkable ship. It didn't sink, you know? So yeah, we see this end on the Carpathia and we see some of our survivors and I can't even imagine what that day would be like, or the rest of my life would be like after enduring that. Uh, And it's true. There are a lot of ifs, like if only they had gotten the message about the iceberg faster, if only the lookouts. Oh, and I think that was an issue too, actually, that we didn't touch upon, but the lookouts, I think, didn't have binoculars or something yeah, like that, the binoculars were missing. I feel like I've heard that too. So they couldn't see as clearly. And if only the Californian had got the message and came there sooner, if only the iceberg had hit at a different angle, maybe of the ship, if only this if only that if only, like there were a lot of like if this tiny thing would have been done better this whole situation could have been avoided um and i think that's what kind of all amounts to just a lot of if onlys but i guess the gain from this is that they really did these investigations from what i've read were pretty pretty brutal and critical and they went hard on changing lifeboat policy, communication policies, um, safety standards. Yeah. I think a lot of things improved. It's just unfortunate that it took an accident to get there. Yeah. But, um, so we get the closing credit epilogue of this is not the end of the story for their sacrifice was not in vain. Today, there are lifeboats for all unceasing radio vigil and in North Atlantic, the international ice patrol guards, the sea lanes, making sure that they're safe for all people of the world. I love that. Yeah. There's actually a lot of safety protocol in place today from this incident. So it's terrible that it happened, but I think that we can learn a lot about survival courage, strength, and also, you know, how to just be better and more vigilant in the future, just in general, all of us. So again, like, I think my big takeaway from this movie was that sinking ships take a lot of shapes and forms, and so do rescue boats. 
So if you're on your form of a sinking ship, I hope that you're able to get resources for help and have that within your reach. And if you have the opportunity to be a rescue boat, I hope that you take that call on because there's a lot of things that need rescuing right now. (laughs) So, and I think this movie definitely inspired me to move forth in a little bit more of a humanistic way. I would agree. I would agree for me too. You want to be the Margaret Brown of the world. You don't want to be (laughs) the man that's leading her lifeboat. Exactly. And actually I, um, I'll just share this really, really quick. You can look this up there anywhere over Google. Um, I'm just taking a front page paper from, I think this is the Rocky mountain news. Um, so I'll show Isabella, but this is an actual front page paper after the accident. It's just on my phone. I don't actually have it. (laughs) Wow, That would be crazy if you had it, but I mean, I'll read some of the headlines. So this was from April 19th. Um, and at this, it reported Titanic death roll, 1,726 vessels ripped wide open. And even the front, like, like this rumor started three days after near my God to the played by steamer band is all but 653 parish. Like there was already the rumor that that song was playing. And then, um, and even here we have like, um, I'm showing Isabella wireless operator tells own story of disaster exclusively for news. That was referring to bride. I killed a big man stealing a life belt from man sending CQD. I couldn't let him die a decent death. Uh, so that attack actually did happen. There was a man who did try to steal their life jackets and they hit him on the head. Wow. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Um, crazed passengers battle in ice struggling for lifeboats as giant liner sinks. Mrs. Strauss refused to leave husband sank with him, rescued victims from ice flooded ocean. They give quotes. Um, oh, this is also interesting. There's a little tribute to the very wealthy passengers redeemed the blood of rich, uh, the brave heroic manner in which Astor Guggenheim, Strauss, Hayes, Dyer, Roblig, Widener, Pairs and other millionaires went to death on the Titanic. Martyrs to gallantry proves that while sordid wealth sometimes dulls the soul and hardens the heart, it does not destroy manhood. All honor to these rich heroes. I will say, I loved Guggenheim. He was a star. He yeah. was really fantastic. I loved his role in this movie. Yeah, you know, it was. In, it's kind of interesting, though. Um, I think Molly Brown even said that it was sad because a lot of the men that did survive felt like it was like a blight on their manhood for having survived and that you're more of a man if you choose to go down with the ship. But like, we shouldn't see masculinity like that. Like we're all trying to live our lives and live the best way we can. So I think that there's something to certainly be said for that, that there's this cultural emphasis on manliness and chivalry. But I think you're looking at someone like Margaret Brown, who's really taking this emphasis of like, we are all in this collective experience together and want the best for ourselves. So I think that, you know, there's something to be said for that. Okay. So I'm going to leave everyone off with a couple of recommendations for, you know, follow-up stuff. If you really like to learn more about the Titanic or just disasters in general. First recommendation is the one I said earlier, Titanic, a survivor story slash the sinking of the Titanic. Um, it's like a two in one book. You can get them on Amazon. I'm pretty sure. Uh, also, uh, Lightoller has a memoir. I'm pretty sure on his experience. He he did live. Um, so he has his experience up there. I don't know if that's 
available for purchase. I just know that he wrote one. Another, and I have not read this, but it's on my reading list, Violet Jessup. Uh, she is a survivor of the Titanic. Not only did she survive the Titanic sinking, but she also survived the sinking of her sister ship, the Britannic, in 1916. And she also survived a boat collision from the Olympic when she was on it in 1911. Someone get this girl off a boat. She's not allowed <laughs> on boats anymore. She's bad luck. She kept going on boats, but she lived through all of it. So she was like on a boat crash, a boat sinking, and another boat sinking. I believe she even hit the propeller in the Britannic sinking um, and yeah, still lived, no. lived to a ripe old age. If I, saw, <laughs> if I saw her get on a boat with me, I'm getting off that boat. <laughs> She's like the luckiest unlucky woman in the world. Uh, yeah. but apparently she lived a really, really cool life beyond that, traveled a lot. And actually the scene where Thomas Andrews is like telling the stewardess to wear the life jacket as an example, I think that's supposed to technically be her, Violet Jessup. But she wrote a really cool memoir called Titanic Survivor, The Newly Discovered Memories of Violet Jessup, who survived both the Titanic and Britannic disasters. Um, my last recommendation that I'm going to give to everyone is a book called The Survivor's Club by Ben Sherwood. And I'm like showing Isabella. <laughs> right now. It's a red book with kind of like a lock keyhole, yeah, keyhole on the lock. cover. This is a really cool book. So the subtitle is The Secrets and Science That Could Save Your Life. And it basically, he interviews the people who survived a bunch of disasters and kind of asked them what got them through it and created kind of this... I don't know, guide to how to survive in the face of trauma or like going and, and this doesn't, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be a boat sinking. It could be any sort of trauma. Um, there's, yeah, there's a cool chapter on the Estonia sinking actually, which happened in 1994. Uh, that was the boat sinking. And again, talking about hypothermia, body temperature, being close to death and how that guy lived. There's um, the wrong and right things to do in a plane crash, um, prayers, miracles, the power of faith, um, you know, what got people through the Holocaust, uh, are some people luckier than others, um, how fear can actually save you, and why adversity is good for you. It's really good. It's a really good book. There's a lot of really cool tips on just facing trauma in general. So highly recommend that one. But Wow, what an episode. It was quite <laughs> a feat to record this one, but we did it. I'm so excited we did. I really, really thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Um, I think that, like, I don't know if you, I mean, they're so different, this one in the 1997 Titanic, and I have not seen the one from the 50s with Barbara Stanwyck, but um, yeah, I think that they're, they would be cool to watch side by side. This is like kind of one perspective, and then I feel like Titanic. 1997 is another perspective of just two passengers. <laughs> I would, I would recommend both. Yeah. yeah. I think both are, are very good and do both do a great job. One more so than the other, obviously the earlier one does a better job than 1997, but I think both do a great job and are pretty historically accurate. 
Yeah, absolutely. So thank you again so, so much to the listener who recommended this one. I'm really glad I crossed this off my list. I can't believe I hadn't seen it before. Uh, Like I said, it's available for free on YouTube. So for sure, take advantage of that. I think it's a really powerful story. I think it's just a piece of history we should all be aware of, honestly. And this is a really good visual depiction of it if reading is not so much your thing or endless Wikipedia rabbit holes like I did. Uh, yeah, it was, it's such a good movie. Highly recommend. Isabella, where can they find us on social media? Well, I'm so glad you asked, Emma. On Instagram, they can find us at Old Soul Movie Podcast. On Twitter, they can find us at Old Soul Pod. And on Facebook, they can find us at The Old Soul Movie Podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much, everyone, for sticking around. Um, I don't know how long this episode will be now because of the, <laughs> the, the time differences. But thank you anyway for sticking around till the very end. We hope that you have a good holiday celebration. If you're celebrating a holiday this weekend, be it Passover, Easter, if you're observing Ramadan. Um, Yeah, we hope that you have a peaceful time. We're actually probably going to take this next week off, but then we'll be back with more great stuff in the future. Can't wait. keep sharing with us what kind of movies you want us to cover. If we've missed anything that's iconic, we have some good stuff planned, but we want to hear more about what you think. So thank you again, everyone. And we'll see you next time on the old soul movie podcast.